Um, we can now come to the point in our service where we give our attention to the reading of God's Word and the teaching of God's Word. And uh, today we continue where we left off. Uh, we, we're in the book of Exodus, uh, a wonderful book. And uh, we, we're, we're going to jump ahead, actually. We, we're not going to pick up exactly where we left off. Uh, last week we were in Exodus 14. Today we're going to jump to 17 uh, because uh, we, we want to track with Israel and uh, the, the people of God and see where they are in their journey of faith. And here in Exodus 17, we have the distinct honor to see God teach His people some very hard lessons, lessons on faith. And I think as we study it, we will see how pertinent it is for us in our journey of faith. As we turn to the reading of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Exodus 17. It's also in your bulletins there in the back panel, if you'd like to turn there. And I invite you to follow along carefully to help us with the reading. Please turn. The Bible reading today is Exodus 17, 1-7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, as we now come to the teaching of your word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear, and minds to perceive. In particular, God, we ask that you would help us to see the gospel in this passage, and you would help us to see the face of Christ in this text. Warm us with the face of your Son. Help us to see him. God, we ask also that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O rock, and our salvation. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine you're on a dusty road home in 33 AD. The road is the road to Emmaus, and two people are with you. One you know, and the other you don't know. He looks familiar, yet not. This person, the stranger, is the resurrected Christ, but you don't recognize him yet. You walk and talk, and you walk and talk for two and a half hours, and what do you talk about? how everything in the scriptures ultimately points to him. Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and all the way through the prophets, he explained to you what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Have you ever wondered why stories like Exodus 17 exist in the Bible? Well, according to Luke chapter 24, it's because such stories whisper Jesus' name. 
revealing to us the greater story within every biblical story. The scriptures tell us that the, the great love story of God who sent his son to die for us and rise for us is here. It's in these texts. It's in these pages. You just need to listen carefully. You need to listen for the whisper of Jesus' name. Today's passage in Exodus 17 is no exception. In 1 Corinthians 10, if you were to flip over there, you will see Paul say this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this fact, he writes. Our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, the face of Christ and the gospel in this text. I want to help you see that you are more sinful than you know it and yet more loved than you could ever imagine. And to do this, we're going to look at two points today to guide us through our text. The first is when we try God, and the second is how God responds to being tried. The first point is when we try God, and the second is how God responds to being tried. Let's look at our first point, when we try God. As we look at verse 1 to 4, we see our text confront something we're all guilty of, sin. Having recently left Egypt and now wandering in the wilderness, verse 1 tells us that the Israelites were commanded by God to move from the wilderness of Sin, not sin, uh, the Hebrew word is Sin, to Rephidim. God has been telling his people to move stage by stage from place to place through the wilderness, and today they end up in a place called Rephidim. Now, if you were to look at what Rephidim means and you were to Google it, you would see that Rephidim means place of refreshment. And yet our text tells us, ironically and problematically, that there is no water at Rephidim. The place is dry, bone dry. And facing hardship, God's people are confronted with a choice, much like we have a choice when we face hardship. The first choice is to either trust God or to distrust God to trust God, or to test God. If you're investigating Christianity, you need to know that we all live in a wilderness, a spiritual wilderness. It might not be visible or literal like the Israelites, but it's still real. And the New Testament authors pick up on this. And so they teach us to learn from the examples of the Israelites here in the Bible. But I will say this, it's not just the New Testament authors that testify of this actually. Your own soul bears witness to this. How do I know that? Well, have you ever wondered why things seem so out of control in this world and why there's so much suffering in this world? Have you ever wondered why so many of us, maybe you included, feel a deep sense of restlessness when you wake up in the morning? A deep sense of disappointment with life in this morning? Why some of you feel like you lack peace? Why some of you feel like you lack love? Why do you feel like you lack joy? Why, when you think about your life, the word that comes to describe your life is the word dry? A couple weeks ago, I was in a subway and I was overhearing two people talk about their life. And based on the way their conversations were going, uh, I'm pretty confident they weren't Christians or even uh, any religious at all. And reflecting on the daily motions of life, one gentleman said, man, my life feels dry. What that person was feeling, and what might you be feeling today, is the spiritual effects of living in a wilderness, a dry spiritual desert. And that's your soul bearing witness to you about your spiritual condition. 
you inhabit a spiritual wilderness. Now, the question is, in this wilderness, where will you go? As we all face hardship in this life, in this life in the wilderness, we will all have a choice to make. The choice is either to trust God in the wilderness and to turn to Him for help and to satisfy our thirst, or to distrust God and to look elsewhere. To trust God on one hand, or to test God on the other. If you're wondering what's the difference between trusting God and testing God, well, uh, trusting God means turning to God and being humble before God when things don't go our way. Trusting God means allowing God to be God and submitting ourselves to His way. Trusting God says to God in hardship, God, this is hard, but I trust you. This doesn't make sense to me, but I'm not going to contend with you. I'm going to hold on to you, knowing you're holding on to me. Trusting God means we wait on him and find ways to actually complain to him in ways that honor him. If you're wondering how can we complain to God in ways that honor him, I'd encourage you actually to go back to our sermon series from 2022 in the summer. We did a series in the Psalms, and we looked at various laments, and we learned how to complain to God in ways that honor him. You can find that online on our website. One choice is to trust God. The other is to... It says, Then the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. At first glance, it might not seem like much is going on other than them just arguing with Moses. Uh, But if you look closely at the word quarrel and you dig deep into that word and study what that word means in the original languages, you'll see it paints a vivid picture of what testing God actually looks like. The Hebrew word for quarrel means to lodge a legal complaint against someone. It's a legal term. It's more than just nagging someone because you don't like something going on in your life. It's more than just complaining to someone. It's actually formally charging someone with a legal complaint. To quarrel with someone, in other words, is to sue someone, to put them on trial. And when the Bible says that the people quarreled with Moses, it means they pressed charges against him. Interesting. But not just him. If you look even closer into verse 3, you see they're charging God too, subtly. Moses helps us see the subtlety of their accusations here in verse 2, seeing their issue isn't ultimately with him, but God who is there in our higher authority. Moses draws out the issue when he says, why do you test the Lord? What Moses shows us here is that the people are charging him and God with crimes against the community. We see how serious these charges are in verse 4. It says that they want to stone Moses. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that the charges are actually a capital offense that they're charging them with. These are capital crimes. Uh, what's the specific crime? Treason. Verse 3's response from the Israelites seemed to suggest this. What does verse 3 says? It says, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? In other words, why did you betray us to die in the wilderness? Why did you deliver us from Egypt only to deliver us to our graves in this dump of a desert? (laughs) Demanding answers, quarreling with God, and quarreling with Moses, the people sued Moses and indirectly sued God in the wilderness. One of the ways this passage shows us that we often test God is by subtly suing him 
in our hearts. I know you've probably never thought of it this way or haven't heard it put this way, so I want you to think about this for a minute. Isn't it often when things don't go our way or we're not getting what we want that that's when we judge God for his actions or seeming inactions? Life out of control, isn't that when we hold court in our hearts and demand answers from God, cross-examine God, question God? For many of us, not all of us, this often happens as a result of God striking a nerve in us as he challenges secret idols in our hearts. What are some For many of us who have been coming to church for some time, we know better than to accuse God openly. And so we do this quietly in our hearts. We sue God quietly in our hearts, muffling our voices and letting our hearts do the talking. We hold court sessions against God in our soul. Grumbling within, we growl at him, why are you withholding that relationship from me? Why aren't you giving me the child that I want? We try God. To use the words of C.S. Lewis, taking the bench, we put God in the dock. Trying God is how many of us test God whenever we face adversity. And this is how the Israelites go about their way. And as we continue to look at our text, the irony of Exodus 17 is that the people charged Moses and God for crimes against the community. Uh, They charged him for treason, yet, ironically, it wasn't God or Moses that was guilty of treason in in this passage. It's actually the Israelites who were. Committing cosmic treason, the Israelites were the ones who deserved to die as they hardened their hearts and tested God in unbelief. God owed them nothing, just as he owes us nothing. We are the creatures. We owe the creator everything. And yet here, the people complain. And for them to complain to God and accuse him of wrongdoing or incompetency, well, that was mutiny. Mutiny against the Most High. For those of us who do this quietly in our hearts, it's muffled mutiny, muffled mutiny against the Most High. And what we deserve in those moments are not answers from God, but like the Israelites, wrath. We deserve punishment. We deserve what the scriptures would say are the wages of sin. And what are the wages of sin? Romans 3 tells us it's death, eternal death, spiritual death. As we summarize our first point, when we try God, we see God confront one of the ways we often test him. We test him by subtly suing him when we don't get our way. For many of us, this will surprise us because we might not even realize we're doing this. And so our first point serves us by revealing this to us. It reveals to us our sin. As we look at our second point, how God responds to being tried, We see how God responds to our suing him. We see how God responds to our sin. What's more, we'll see how God loves us despite our sin. As we move along in our text, we come to an uncomfortable situation in our text. Accusations have been made and a trial needs to be tried. 
at this time, if you look at the passage, you'll see three people have been charged. Moses has been charged, God has been charged, and the Israelites have been charged. Moses called out the Israelites for their cosmic sin, and now they too need to give an answer. And as we look at verse 5, what you'll see here described is God calling court to order, commanding Moses to pass on before the people and telling them, telling Moses to pick uh, both some elders and also his staff with him, God's saying court is in session. You only ever get the elders together when you're about to pass a judgment. And commentators believe that the elders are here for this reason. They're here to serve as witnesses of the session. The the staff in verse 5 is very important. You don't miss that one there. The the staff represents God's judicial power. Notice how the staff is described as a staff with which you struck the Nile. The reference here to the first plague is a sign that God is about to pass judgment. The staff is no tool of deliverance here, but a tool of for judgment. God is saying here, you want a trial? I'll give you a trial. You want to try me? Let's do this. Someone will be judged, and someone is going to be punished, and the question is, who though? Who though? Verse 6 tells us who. And perhaps one of the most astonishing turn events, uh, God says the unexpected. He says, Behold, I will stand before you at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Going before everyone and standing before them, God says, I will stand for trial. Did you catch that? And I will bear your guilt. The phrase stand before you is an astonishing phrase. Why? Because whenever you see this phrase in the Bible, it normally describes a servant standing before the master as they wait for a command or a sentence of judgment. Never do you see a master stand before the servant, except here. The Bible's a thick book, and there are a lot of references about people standing before one another, and this is the only time, the only time, you see the master stand before the servant. Here commentators see that God humbles himself and says, I will stand before you. I will pay your penalty. I will take the blow you all deserve. Why? So that all of you might be preserved. And we see that. Water comes out, the people drink, and all is well. As we come to verse 6, it becomes clear whose sins are actually being tried here. It's not God's. It's not Israel. Or it's not Moses. It's Israel's. Yet looking them in the eye, God says, I'll take the blow for your mutiny. I will take the blow you all deserve. And as we think about this for a minute, I think for most modern readers, God's reaction might surprise us quite a bit. Why? Because doesn't, he, he doesn't do what we normally expect him to do. Uh, many of us have the idea that God in the Bible, the God of the Bible is some angry, impatient, and petty deity. Yet our text shows us the opposite. It shows us that he's not like what you and I often make him out to be. He's not impatient. He's not angry. He's not petty. No, here he shows us that he's gracious. He's patient, long-suffering, and kind. He shows us this when he says, I will stand before you. I will take the blow for you. Strike the rock that will represent me, and your sins will be forgiven. Strike the rock, and your sins will be forgiven. (laughs) If you've never caught this before, 
reading Exodus 17, I want you to see this is the heart of the gospel being proclaimed to you. Here we see a people more sinful than they know it, yet more loved than they could ever be ever imagined. Facing death for their guilt, God pays their debt, and by taking it upon himself, just like how he did it with us in Jesus Christ, he did it for them too in Exodus 17. You might wonder, I wasn't just seeing a physical rock struck, but a spiritual rock. A spiritual rock who would one day come down to earth and take away the sins of the world. He was looking to the spiritual rock, the rock of ages, who would come and die in our place centuries later. The rock that Paul says is Jesus Christ. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 10. The rock was Christ. And what was happening here when Moses struck the rock at Horeb was that God looked down the corridors of history to the day that his son would die for sinners past, present, and future, and he said, it is enough. I will pass over their sins because my son will die for their mutiny. And Jesus died for their mutiny, just like he died for ours. God was satisfied with the atonement made in Christ's blood because Christ paid our penalty. Our penalty has been paid. Our case closed forever if we put our trust in Christ. Justice satisfied and sinners now justified. Romans 3 looks at this and says, God was pleased to forbear with Israel's past sin so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is where the text was pointing us to. From the beginning, it was always trying to point us to Christ and the God of the gospel. Earlier, we said that all stories in scriptures whisper Jesus' name, and having studied Exodus 17 together now, I wonder, do you see him now? Do you see how this story magnificently, gloriously points us to Christ? Do you see how it declares the gospel in full? If so, marvel at that and ponder that. Let it light up your heart and let it inspire you to read all of Scripture with that eye in mind. Applications. What are some applications for us today? Well, one application is to read the Scriptures with an eye for Christ. We said every story whispers His name, so let us read looking for His name. Let us read looking for His face. Another application is to learn from Israel's mistakes and harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and Massah. Hebrews 3 is quoting Psalm 95, if I remember correctly as well. There your ancestors tested me and tried me. These things served as an example for you. Our passage today invites us to learn from Israel's mistakes, and so let us learn from them. If you're currently experiencing hardship today and you've become aware today that your heart has been putting God on trial, I want you to know that God is patient and God is gracious. God will take a lot of your accusations, but he will not be your eternal punching bag. If you continue down this road with no intent to repent, I need to warn you, because the scriptures warn us, that there may be a day when God says enough. 
making you stand for trial and demanding answers from you for your sin, God might put you in his dock and make you stand for your own sins. And stand you will not. Numbers 12, Numbers 12 tells us this. The same generation that we read about in Exodus 17 failed to enter the promised land. Why? Because they refused to learn from their mistakes. Insisting on trying God and contending with God, God chose to judge them on account of their own merit and actions. Don't make their same mistake. Learn from the Israelites. For the elders of our church here, we don't often talk to you from the pulpit. I need to warn you to pay close attention to your hearts too and be sure not to test God. Because if you flip over to Numbers 20, Moses tested God once. And what happened to him? He was not allowed to enter the land. You are held to a higher standard, my brothers. So let us keep watch over our hearts. Let us not harden our hearts. Let us learn from Israel's mistakes. Now, I know some of you here today are going through some hard things, and I know some of you are really struggling in your heart. You don't want to be bitter with God, and you don't want to test God, but you're struggling. If this is you, I want to assure you, God sees your heart, and He knows that you're struggling. He knows that you're trying to be faithful, and I want to assure you that He will not abandon you, and He will not turn on you. If you're struggling with trusting Christ right now, uh, what might help you in this season is to do this. Someone taught me this a long time ago, and it has helped me greatly in my life, and that is to make it a habit of examining the cross of Christ each day. Why? Because in examining the cross of Christ each day, it will keep your heart so occupied that you won't have time or energy or the know to cross-examine Christ that day. When you examine the cross of Christ each day, you will inevitably happen, what will inevitably happen is that you will see God's love for you. You'll see his faithfulness toward you. You'll be reminded of how far God went for you while you were still in sin. You'll see the face of the one who died for you, and you'll be warmed by the gentle glow of his grace toward you. And so, if you struggle with cross-examining Christ, I encourage you to do the opposite. Examine the cross of Christ. It will serve you well. I can promise you that. As we close, I want to address those of you who are investigating the faith last. I want to talk to you about what Exodus 17 has to say to you. What are the applications for you? Exodus 17 teaches you to embrace Jesus today because we live in a spiritual wilderness and many of you instinctively know this. Your soul is restless and your soul is thirsty. And there's only one person in the world who can give you what your soul is really searching for. It's the rock in the wilderness. It's Jesus Christ. The love you long for, the hope you thirst for, the joy you pine for, the peace you pine for are all found in Him. If you want those things, you need to go to Him and drink from Him. What Exodus 17 teaches you today is to go to the rock and receive the rock. By faith through grace, go and receive the rock. Get the rock. Well, as we conclude... We consider two points today. Our first point was when we try God, and the second was how God responds to being tried. In considering these points, we saw how the gospel is revealed to us in this text, and more importantly, we saw the face of Jesus Christ in this text. And so I want to invite you to come to him and drink from him. Receive the rock. Let us pray. 
God, we thank you that in your word you always point us back to the Son. You point us back to Christ and you show us the glorious hope we have in Christ. And God, we ask that you would help us to become a people who are faithful and people who are full of faith, that we would trust you in hardship and not test you. God, as we pray, we pray and we admit that we are weaker and more sinful than we dare admit. But through you, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. We thank you for paying our debt on the cross, taking what we deserve in order to offer us complete forgiveness. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, we turn from our sins and receive you as our Lord and Savior, our rock of salvation yet again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, uh, Lee Mark is giving me the peace sign, which means that uh, I, I think we have time for q and I was told that if I can finish before 11.08, uh, we're good to go. So it's 11.06. Let's have some Q&A. Let's do it, Kingsley. All right. Uh, first question for you is, uh, without their grumbling, would God have given them water? Without the grumbling, would God have given, up, given them the water? Um, I don't, well, I would say yes. I think in I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, the, the whole point is that they were supposed to trust God. Uh, I think they could have just asked God and say to God, Lord, we, we need water. We're, we're, we're thirsty. And God probably, in his grace and mercy, would have given them water. So, uh, great question. But yes, I think so. I don't think the grumbling was necessary. They could have just probably asked with humility. Why do you think God in this passage did not strike them first? to show them their sins like in other places in the Old Testament before he intervened in sin. All Ten Commandments yet, they haven't received the, the, the law in its entirety. And so God here is treating them with an extra measure of grace. He's very gracious. In Exodus 16, 17, and, and also uh, 15, the people grumble three times in those chapters. Yet God time and time again pours out his grace to them. Now if you flip over to Numbers, after they've received the covenant, God's a little harder on them. Why? The law has been given. The people know better than to test God. There is an accountability that comes with the knowledge of the law. And so God, scholars believe, commentators believe, uh, at least my professor believes, uh, he wrote a commentary in the Old Testament, he believes that this, uh, this mercy that's shown to them here is actually uh, a result of God being patient with them uh, because they haven't yet received the law. But as you see afterwards, there is a greater accountability. And so uh, I hope that helps clarify. That's a great question. Uh, we're at 11.09, so I think we still have five minutes. Do we have more questions? Or I think I just unlocked Superstar Teaching Kingsley right oh. now. <laughs> I'm excited. He wants to keep going. <laughs> Maybe um, one more, one more, one we'll more. We'll do one more. Okay. All right. Um, let's see here. Pertaining to the text, preferably. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is a good one. Um, all right, no, that one doesn't pertain to the text. I, I'll respond to those messages <laughs> afterwards privately. Please, please know that I'm not okay. going to ignore your questions. Yeah. All right, let's do this one then. Um, is there a difference between asking questions and testing God? Um, it is not immediately clear um, whether questioning automatically means testing God and hence sinful and offensive. So maybe this is a good way to kind of wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Is there a difference between asking questions and then testing God? Uh, the issue here is actually what's going on in the heart, right? Uh, I can ask a question to God and it can be a, 
a humble question or it can be a, a, a proud question. So, for example, uh, when I was uh, younger, a young man, uh, I remember I was struggling with my singleness, and there were times where I would ask God, God, why am I still single? And I would pray, Lord, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And I would ask him the question. But the tone was in a posture of humility, willing to submit myself to God. Fast forward a couple months later, I, I was reading my journal the other day. You should never read back your journals because it's embarrassing. But I wrote, because that day, I was writing in all caps, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and what happened there was that in my heart, I was actually accusing God of something. I was accusing God of being unloving, and so the issue here isn't, is it okay or not okay to ask questions? It's always okay to ask questions, but what's the posture of your heart? What's the tone that you're taking? And that's what you want to be careful about. You don't want to, be in, you don't want to sue God in that moment, and that was what I was doing. I was interrogating God in my journal with a pen. And so I would commend to you to check your heart, really, uh, and, 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 and ask the Lord to search your heart, and he'll help you know whether you are, in fact, trying him. Well, at this time, we shall go to our time of, uh, I guess it's a song of reflection, correct? Great. So let us all rise at this time, and we can sing our song of reflection.